0: It's a great privilege to share with you on this Sunday morning. Um, the day is, of course, Waitangi Day, and I wanted to begin by reading you a very short extract from um, a story about a man you probably haven't heard of. Um, his name was Panakariao, and um, this was uh, written down as part of Waitangi tribunal evidence given. Um, by a man called Rima Eruera. He wrote, "Panakariol became profoundly unhappy with what was happening to himself and his people. Prior to his death, ka tangohea ia te kākahu o te hahi karaitiana, ka u tonu, tonu ki te whakapono i ona atua Māori. In other words, he took off the clothing of the Christian church and affirmed the faith of his Māori gods. The reason that Panakarial did this is because he had become very disillusioned around what he saw as um, a betrayal of the principles of the Treaty of Waitangi, but not just that. A betrayal of the ideas that he had encountered in the Christian faith, in the good news of Jesus Christ, and the, the message of Christianity that had been shared with him and with all those around him by the missionaries. Um, In his case, these were largely Wesleyan missionaries, um, but there was a lot of encounter as well with the Anglican Church, and so unfortunately we can't disown our own responsibility as part of his story. And the question that this raises for many Maori these days, and for many people in general, is how can we disentangle that story of pain and loss? How can we disentangle that from the way in which the message of Christianity came. Panakareau eventually took off uh, the clothes of the Christian church, not so much these that I'm wearing today, but in other words, Western clothing, and went back to his old ways, a symbolic transformation of, of who he was, back to what he had been. What Māori had encountered at the time were a number of things that resonated with them around the story of Christianity, but also that encountered things that were completely new. In other words, in what they'd come across as a long time before the Treaty of Waitangi and then through the process of getting the treaty signed and agreed and then the disillusionment that happened afterwards, they'd encountered a whole bunch of different things. Some of them they recognised as being true and also old, true things that they already knew about. Some of them were entirely new concepts and some of those they recognised as also being true or at least for a while. But the fact that they came in this packaging, they came at the same time as other things which turned out to bring disillusionment, to bring harm and dispossession. that meant that it became very difficult to disentangle what was new and true and what was new and false, what was new and harmful. And as well as that, it became difficult to look back on those things that were known before the missionaries came and to say, well, this was something that was old and perhaps not great. Um, And this was something that's old and which we still hold and recognize to be true. And for for Maori Christians, that process of disentanglement is one that still goes on very considerably today. And so in the reading that you heard before from Isaiah 6, I wanted to ask you if you'd heard the two different things that are going on there, because my guess is that different hearers, different readers of the text, hear different things mentioned in there in ways that help us to start to pick apart what was new and what's true in the message that Panakareau and and others encountered. And it helps us also to understand why for many Māori they held on to their Christian faith or came back to it, even though they'd had that process of disillusionment, that process of, of distancing, of feeling pushed away by those who embodied the Christian message to them. In that famous passage from Isaiah 6. Isaiah approaches the throne, he hears that refrain, holy, 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 and in what's said to him, we encounter a couple of things that I wanted to highlight. One of them is this picture of sinfulness and of the need to be saved from it. Isaiah recognises that he himself is somebody who's sinful. He comes from a people who need rescue from their sins as well. But he also talks about something that would have been much more resonant with Panakario and those who were around him. And that's the place of the land. And of course, in this first part of Isaiah, it's actually a bit of a message of judgment. You might have heard in there the idea of the people hearing and not listening. Always a very depressing message for a preacher to think that that might in fact be what goes on. But it's a true one, of course, too. And Isaiah's task, as calling, was to proclaim this message, but in his own generation, at least, to see that people would reject it. And as a consequence, they'd be cut off from the land. But built into this is this message that that won't be permanent. In other words, that there is this permanent connection with the land. And that message, particularly in the Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible, of there being a permanent connection with the land, is one that was immensely resonant for Panakariou and for many others around him. So in the oral tradition of the Wānanga, that's not normally written down, but was as part of that Waitangi, Waitangi Tribunal evidence. Um, Panikario, it's recorded, made his statement encouraging people to sign the treaty because of the discussions which focused on this verse from Leviticus 25. e te finua, he mea o te tonu atu, nōku hoki te whenua, he manene hoki kautau, he noho noa ki ahau. And that verse speaks about the fact that the land cannot be sold permanently because, God says, the land is mine. And everyone else are merely uh, tenants, are merely stewards of that land. In other words, a concept that resonates well for Māori, perhaps being kaitiaki of the land, but also of the fact that the land can never be lost permanently. It's something that comes through here in Isaiah's message as well. And as a consequence, these two things go together throughout the Hebrew Bible and also as part of the background and sometimes in the foreground of the New Testament, we find this connection between the desire to live in God's land under God's rule, to to truly be God's place once again and for God's people to be there. We find this as a bit of a theme that starts in the garden as God's people end up outside God's place. But there's a hope always that we'll come back to it. And there's that picture at the end of the story of Scripture, that God's people will once again be back in God's land, the whole world, and it will be once again a place where God's worship carries on. And within that, we find woven through the whole of Scripture, this thread around the connection with the land and the idea that people, families in particular, and groups of people ought to be able to reside there, to possess the land, and to have it permanently. And it's that message, that conversation around Leviticus 25, that persuaded that group of Maori to sign the treaty. Because what happened was they they spoke to the missionaries and said, uh, look, we've been reading the Bible, and the people who want us to sign the treaty, they're Christians as well. And the missionaries, possibly a bit naive, said, yes, that's true, they are. And they said, well, we'd regard this as being something which not only resonates with us, but we want to check that you think this is something they regard as sacred as well, that these scriptures are what guide their life too. And the missionaries, perhaps more out of hope than um, than reality, but I think also honestly at the time said, yes, the people who want you to sign the treaty also believe these things. They hold these scriptures to be be holy, to be sacred, um, and to be what we should abide by. Now, the disillusionment that came was because they eventually saw that people did not hold these scriptures to be sacred in that way. It wasn't because of a determination that the message itself was untrue, but because the embodiment of it stood at odds with what the message said. What they encountered there was that what they knew to be true was that the land should not be alienated, that the land was permanently to be possessed. They found a resonance in scripture with what they already knew to be true but they also found something that was new and true, which was from outside their own experience, something completely new. And that was the idea of salvation. This idea of sin that you might need forgiveness from was something that was genuinely novel. The idea that God offered salvation in the way that's spoken of here in Isaiah 6, that he offered salvation in the way that permeates the whole of scriptures was a genuinely new concept. And for many Maori, that new idea of salvation, of rescue from outside ourselves, a rescue that transforms life now and for eternity was one that was such a compelling vision that even in the midst of disillusionment around the hypocrisy, uh, the the betrayal of the principles of the scripture, was one that many Māori have never let go and has been passed down through the generations. What I want to encourage us this morning on this Waitangi Day is to recognise not just the loss and the pain in that story, and the way in which people did put aside something which had come in from outside, but also to recognise that there's an inherent possibility of salvation, of redemption of that story within the Christian message. It's one that calls us to acts of repentance, not just over what we've done, but of what has happened in the past, where we have agency to influence the future, the story of salvation is one that we can embody ourselves as well as the story of the land. We can show that it's possible in what we do and in what we what we advocate for and what we say that we're participating in the idea of salvation as it relates to the land so that people can encounter again that greater story of salvation for the whole of the world and for all of humanity. And I want to briefly mention here that this involves a call on each of our lives. One of the other readings that's set for today in the um, pattern of readings that's often used in Anglican churches is the story of the call of the first disciples. Jesus comes into a situation where God's people are in a sense in God's land, but not really, because Jesus is in that situation where God's rule is not established. People are looking for the kingdom of God because they want to see God's people in God's land under God's rule. What does he do to bring that kingdom about. Of course, as we many of us know, he does not set about getting rid of the Romans, even though in one sense they deserved to be got rid of. Evil powers ought to be overcome and we long for the day when they are. But what does Jesus do? He commissions these people to go and share the message of salvation that includes the justice and the judgment of God against all evil power, that message of salvation that offers us a rescue from sin and all of its effects, he commissions people, just like Isaiah was commissioned, to go and preach. But this time, unlike Isaiah, it's going to be effectual. Isaiah had that depressing prophetic task of preaching and not being heard in his own day. But Jesus commissions these people and he says, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. And as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. And of course, that message has spread throughout the whole world, often contradicted by the very people who brought it and yet it's never lost its power to transform lives, to transform lands and in the end to transform the whole of the world. That's part of our calling is to be part of that message of salvation but to embody it better than those who brought it to this land first and also to recognise that in what we look at there. There was something new that came, which for many Māori has been something that they've never abandoned. Despite being betrayed by those who brought the message, it's been passed on down. And one of the great privileges that we have within the Anglican church is that we've inherited something. We've inherited this taonga, passed down through the generations, and we get to participate in an unbroken chain of those who have heard that, that new and true message that came and influence people. And in doing so, we're participating in a way of acting and being that calls us out of ourselves, out of our current situations, often into the discomfort of following Jesus, into proclaiming, into advocating for, into acting differently in ways that otherwise we would not. And Waitangi Day offers us a chance, of course, to have a public holiday, and that's wonderful. Of course, to watch the news and see if there's protests. I think they've kind of managed to escape a lot of that by by doing it online instead of in person. But it also as Christians gives us a chance to see how we can locate ourselves within that story. Uh, Andrew Wilson and Alistair Roberts have written a book called Echoes of Exodus, thinking of the ways in which we as God's people are in that journey between the land that we've been liberated from and the land that we've been promised. That we're on a journey to what we have not yet possessed, to the land that God has offered for us, the hope that's been set before us. And on that journey, our task is to embody, to proclaim and to live out that message of salvation that God offers. And they say this, we also live as those who have recently been released from centuries of oppression. That is with a preferential offer option for the poor and a commitment to champion the cause of those who have been abused, bullied, captured, disenfranchised, enslaved, forgotten, ghettoized, hated, ignored, judged, killed, lynched, marginalized, and so on throughout the alphabet. Exodus people know what it is to be ground into the dust by those with power. So whenever we see it happening to others, to racial minorities, to slaves, to trafficked women, to the poor, to the unborn children, to the refugees, the homeless, those with disabilities, orphans and widows, we act. We march. It might be a bit uncomfortable for some of us. We speak, we pray, we invite, we give. We use the power that we have been given to serve the interests of those who are without it, because the Exodus was never just for us. Free people free people. And I think there's a beautiful summary of where we find ourselves within the story, that for most of us, it may well be an uncomfortable call to go and share life in a world that's different from our own. My wife, uh, who's from England, she's blonde and blue-eyed and does not in any way look Maori, um, she often comments on the fact that we live in two different worlds within this country. We live partly in the Pākehā world, the Kiwi world I guess in one sense, but we also live in the Māori world and I just want to say to you, this is actually something which is still uncomfortable for me as I try to recover that part of my own heritage. I well recall going down to tapuia for a tangi um, and I was expecting there to only be a small group of people, in fact I already arranged with one of the kuia there, that I could come onto the Marae when uh, not many people were there. Unfortunately, you've got very little control over it. So while we're waiting out in the freezing cold car park uh, for the previous group to finish up, up roll these three massive buses from Te Wānanga or o Aotearoa, and out of the buses come the flashiest Māori speakers in the entire country um, with, with, I don't know, like 200 people there. And I'm afraid my real Māori is not what I hope it will one day be. Um, and it's certainly a long way from there. So we, get onto, we walked on and I had to speak. On behalf of our group and I stood up and I did my thing and I sat down again and my wife tapped me on the shoulder from behind me and she goes, Lyndon, you looked like you were scared. And I said, that's because I was terrified. Now, for most of us, any kind of call to go and to share life with those who are marginalised is going to involve us putting ourselves in situations actually where we're used to being the powerful ones, but where we find that we are without power, we're the ones who aren't looked up to in that setting. And I just want to encourage you to say, it's actually just like that for me. I've I've inherited a great deal of privilege, but in order to participate in that story, I've had to go and do that too. Now, it gave um, a number of my crew a good laugh watching me sweat it out um, as I was speaking, and maybe it'll give me a chuckle at some point to see some of you come and join in with that story too. But I want to encourage you that that is in fact the call for us as Christians on Waitangi Day, is to go and put ourselves in those uncomfortable situations, so that we can speak and live this time a message that is both new and true in every generation. We need to look for those things where there's a resonance of truth in what is already known amongst the people we're trying to reach. But this time we need to match it up with a life that embodies, instead of hypocrisy, that embodies a coherence, the consistency the undivided life that all Christians are called to. And when we do that, I have confidence that in the same way when Jesus commissioned these disciples and it had effect, that we too are being commissioned into something which will have an effect, that we can do so in a hopeful sense, not in despair or to think that we'll be saying something that's never really heard, but instead to say, actually, we're working towards the redemption of Aotearoa, towards the redemption of the story that was broken, towards the redemption of our own story as a church where we royally messed it up in certain ways because we're not dependent on ourselves. Instead, we're dependent on God's commissioning to go and do it. Our task, to be honest, is simply to be faithful to that and not to embody in ourselves something different from the message that we've been asked to pass on from generation to generation. Actually, I think the message that we are, in fact, people of unclean lips, the message that we are not what we ought to be, is always going to be a little bit outside ourselves. It was new when it arrived here with the missionary message. But actually, it's new to all of us in every generation. It's actually new every time we encounter it as Christians as well, because there's something in our hearts that wants to tell us that we're already okay, that we're basically smashing it. And part of the Christian message, part of our practice as Christians, is to constantly remind ourselves that those we are taking the message to are hearing the same thing that we have to tell ourselves, that I can't do it on my own, that I in fact do not quite embody what I ought to, and that I too need a saviour to rescue me, even as I'm trying to tell other people about that same saviour. That I am on a level playing field with those that I'm speaking out to. And I think that's where the invitation becomes a wonderful thing. Instead of a message that's patronising, a message that tells people that they're inferior, instead we say, here is a way that we can recover what it means to be truly human. It's a message that I'm still discovering myself over and over again in my own life. It's the message of Jesus Christ who says, I step into what you are in order to lift you up to what you are made to be. In our land, that looks like lifting people up to be Māori, to be Pacifica, to be Pākehā, exactly as God intended us to be in all that diversity. It means lifting us up to recognise the way in which our connection with the land is intended to paint a picture of the permanence that God intends for all humanity. And it's a way of being, I think, that encourages us to recognise that what we have is new and fresh, but it's also new and true in this and every generation. Kia ora